You are listening to Holy Words from Holy Cross, the sermon podcast of Holy Cross Evangelical Lutheran Church in Nazareth, Pennsylvania. We hope you find these words a blessing in your daily walk with God. Please visit us on the web at www.holycrossnazareth.org or in person at 696 Johnson Road, Nazareth, Pennsylvania. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Don't be all else to me, save that thou art. Of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Matthew, I'm going to take over the PowerPoint from up here. Um, how y'all doing temperature-wise? Is it okay for now? All right. <laughs> well, uh, let us pray. Gracious Lord, as we hear again the news of our Lord's resurrection, of the coming of Messiah and his triumph over your enemies, may it again, for we who have heard it, again and again, become news. And may it have an energy to shift and change our lives, that we might better be his representatives, serve him, and love him. Grace us now as we come to a better understanding of what you've done for us, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well. I've preached more bombastic Easter sermons than I'm going to preach today. I've preached more theological sermons than I've preached today. I'm going to preach today, but I probably never have and never will preach a more personal sermon than the one I'm going to preach today. Um, for years, I've had this on my heart and I've wanted to share it, but haven't not only found the right opportunity, but found the right way to do it so it didn't seem hopelessly crazy and up in my head. Most of you know I'm an adult convert to Christianity, but there really are two conversions. Luther said there were three conversions, that there's the conversion of the head, the conversion of the heart, and the conversion of the purse. That's where you laugh. <laughs> but uh, my own experience is I have at least uh, two conversions. Maybe it's because I haven't gotten to the third conversion yet, but I, I, did, I was converted first in my head I examined the evidence surrounding the resurrection and came very clearly to the conclusion that the only reason I could say this hadn't happened is I decided before I ever looked at the evidence that was the conclusion I was going to come to. The evidence for Christ rising from the dead is so overwhelming to my mind that I could not help but believe it, even though I didn't want to. So that was my first conversion. But the conversion of my heart came a great deal later came when I read C.S. Lewis's autobiography. If you were given one of those sheets coming in, the sermon follow-up, I put the quote on there for you to look at and some other quotes that may help you in the week ahead, just time for reflection. But in it, he talked about how, well, 
talk about what I'm going to talk about in the sermon. And it gripped me around the heart because I understood now not just that Christ had risen, but what that meant for me personally, not just at the end when I die and go to heaven and blah, 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 but for right here and right now. And that's what I want to share with you today. Um, over the day ahead, you have a, a moment to think. Think about the, your favorite stories when you were a kid, the stories you wanted to read over and over and over again, or that you went and pulled the book off the shelf yourself and opened them up, the ones that somehow spoke to your heart and made you keep coming back. Now, I've had, I knew I was going to ask this question, so um, I, I'll share with you mine. The first one, it's a strange one, maybe a little bit unusual. My parents had this collection they'd gotten from my grandparents of, of classics illustrated for children. And it was all done in red and, red and black ink. Um, that was the only two colors in the book. And one of the things that was illustrated in there was a children's adaptation of Dante's Inferno. That may sound like a strange one to draw you in. But if you're a little boy and you're seeing big bat-winged demons and you're seeing crazy stuff going on, this is an adventure story. And I didn't really understand it. I was raised outside of church, so the, the main story I didn't really get. But what I saw was this guy glowing with light, the poet Virgil, leading the author, Dante, out of hell and towards heaven. And I knew, I knew it was a story of rescue. And something about that grabbed my young heart and kept me coming back and pouring over those illustrations again and again, even trying to imitate them with my scrawl, because uh, I never got as good at art as my daughter. And then, then there was the book The Hobbit. And um, the first time I, that book was read to me in elementary school by our librarian, Mrs. Mader, and um, I ended up reading it myself then, and I read it at least 10 or 12 times in my childhood. And I loved it because here you had this sort of unassuming, roly-poly little guy whose main concern is not having enough sweets to go around at tea time. And somehow, over the course of this grand adventure he ends up going on, he develops the courage to face down a dragon. All for the friendship of this unlikely group he went on the adventure with. And finally, this is, this, is a neat, this is the weirdest one of all. There was some book up there. It was something like the World Book Encyclopedia. It was some sort of crazy thing, but it was more one of those books about what the future might look like. And it was clearly done right after, right in the blush of our excitement and optimism following the victory we, we had in World War II. And the picture I remember from this book is of a giant airplane, and on the back of the airplane, on the top of the airplane, is an entire town, complete with churches and houses and swimming pools. And it, what I remember was that the, the thrust of the whole thing was that this is the future that might be coming, and you could be part of it. And I thought, wow, I wonder if I can be. I wonder if I can be, do something to make that become a reality. Now, the Jetsons never really arrived. At least not yet. We're getting here quickly. But, um, but I think that those, those stories really point out three of the deepest longings of our human hearts. And that's why they grabbed me when I was a kid. Um, the first one is for security. We want, to, we want security. We want to know we're safe. And sometimes that takes the form of rescue when we're in danger. Sometimes it takes the form of staying safe. 
And uh, we, learn, we learn security. If everything goes well in this world, we learn security, psychologists tell us, at our mother's breast, quite literally. We learn that the world is a place that is fundamentally safe and can be trusted. And that forms a foundation for a healthy life moving forward. And in that, we also learn love. As our mother stares down adoringly at us, and dad runs to get things for mom because, you know, she doesn't want to get up. And he's, all that love surrounding us, we learn that love is something that can come to us and we can turn around and give it back. So love is one of the great themes, and it was really Bilbo's love for the dwarves that drew him on. And finally, finally there was the desire to make a difference. As we grow in strength, I was talking with one of the young men at our uh, last service, and he was telling me how much he can bench press now. He just joined the Thousand Pound Club, and he's very excited. As we grow in strength, as we grow in competence, we want to be part of the good things that are going on in the world. We want our lives to make a difference. We want it to matter that we were here, however briefly, to, to the world and to the people around us. And those three great loves are at the center, one or all of them, of every great story, every story that grabs our imagination and holds us. And I think there's a reason why, and it's more than just human psychology. Because, see, the problem is that as we grow older, the vagaries of life in this sin-soaked world teach us to think of those desires as something naive, something for childhood only, something to be either pessimistic about as we get older and cynical, or at least compromise on. So instead of real security, what we aim for is something like, you know, a nice 401k, nice retirement, or worse, perhaps we start looking for, or we overlook injustices done to other people for the sake of our own material comfort. If you want to know how a nation full of people claiming to be Christian could not only tolerate, but write pamphlets endorsing human slavery, you need look no further than that. Everyone was afraid it would affect their bottom line. We trade in that deep desire for love, real love, substantive love, for something like mutually beneficial relationships. Or worse, status and fame, which give you the impression you're loved, but have none of the substance of it. Because people follow you, but don't really know you. And we trade in our desire to make a real difference for mere plaudits in the end of our career or for the opportunities that come. We look at that and we say to ourselves, well, you know, maybe, maybe at least people will recognize me. Instead of the deep substance that comes from <coughs> knowing that you made a difference whether anyone recognizes that difference or not. Those compromises are what we call sin. 
When Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, the word we translate as perfect is the word teleoi, which means, how do I say this? It means be complete. It doesn't mean match up to a hopelessly high standard. It means be complete. Be the one you were made to be. I love the way the rabbi Maimonides said this. He said, in the world to come, God will not ask me why I was not Moses. He will ask me why I was not Maimonides. These compromises are a great part of the sins for which we need to be forgiven and for which our Lord died on the cross. And the reason why those deep stories grab a hold of us is they call us back to our true selves. They call us back to the destiny for which we were created and with which we've compromised. The best and deepest of those stories go by the title myth. And by myth, I don't mean a false story. I mean a story that is so true, it needs to be dislocated from any particular time or place so that we know it's universal and applies to all of us. You can recognize these stories. They begin with phrases like this. Once upon a time. Or, for a younger generation, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> or even... In the beginning, God. These stories speak to the depths of who we are. And I want to thank um, our partners in Great Britain, uh, uh, Go Chatter Ministries, who did a video which finally let me find a way to introduce this topic to you. I'm going to turn your attention to the screens for about three minutes. When I teach kids, sometimes I tell them the best story in the world ever. It goes like this. Once upon a time, there was a kingdom of light ruled by a generous king. The princess was as wise as she was fair, and all the people were very happy. The end. Of course, the children know that's not the best story in the world ever. The best story in the world involves struggle. So the story continues. One day, the princess noticed the door to the dungeon was ajar. She knew she shouldn't, but... Lower and lower she descends until she sees chained to the wall a dazzling dragon. The dragon said, Don't yell, I need your help. Help, says the princess. My father told me you came to destroy our kingdom. Destroy? No, I came to free you. I came to teach you to fly. And if you release me, I'll teach you. With quivering hands, she pulled the lever, releasing the shackles, and snap! The dragon grabbed her in his talons and carried her off to his lair across the sea. Distraught, the king asks the knights of the realm, Who will rescue my daughter? None of them were brave enough, except a simple shepherd from the hills. The king said, You! I will make you a knight. Bring back the princess. So the newly made knight sailed through deadly storms. He fought terrible monsters. He climbed perilous mountains and he came to the dragon's lair. In an almighty fight to the death, the knight was completely overpowered. And when it looked like all was lost, somehow he trapped the dragon in the cell that had held the princess. The dragon was defeated, the princess was saved, and they returned to the kingdom of light. With joy, the king received back his daughter. And she received the knight 
as her husband. So they all lived happily ever after. That's the best story in the world ever. Because it's every story. It's the great quest, it's overcoming the monster, it's rags to riches, it's love lost and then found, it's tragedy turned to comedy and the happily ever after. Perhaps these stories thrill our hearts because they echo a true story. Perhaps there really is an ultimate hero who came on a mission to fight evil, to give up his life, to rise again and to be one with his people forever. What if the fairy tale is true? What if Jesus is the hero of heroes? What if Easter is the myth that really happened? My wife told me that, oh, there, that's is better. They said, she said my microphone needed adjusting. <laughs> we might need to turn it down a little. I sound like I'm about to, to hum. Um, this myth that really happened, what if the reason why all these stories grip our hearts is that they're not only true for us in terms of our personal psychology, but because they're written into the very fabric of reality? When the Apostle John has his vision in the book of Revelations, what he sees standing at the center of God's throne is a lamb standing as though it were slain from the foundation of the world, he says. Standing because he is risen, slain because he died on a cross from the foundation of the world because although the cross happened at a moment in our history, for God, time is not. And Christ has always been crucified for our sake. This meant that from the very foundation of the world, God had me in mind and my need for salvation had you in mind. And he did all that he did for our sake. And now that he has risen victorious over sin, death, and the devil, he is here, that, that reality in our objective moment, in our midst of our material reality, tells us something about our spiritual reality, which is that all those stories you loved as a kid are the best part of you. All those deep hungers of our soul are just there in order to be filled. That our desires for security and love to make a difference really do mean something. That life is not a story told by an idiot full of sound and fury and signifying nothing, but that your life matters. Matters enough to God that he was willing to trade his life for it. As it comes to security, I don't think I have ever read a passage more times in the hospital than this one. I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or love, what greater love could there be? The Apostle John, who knew something about love, he was called the beloved disciple by Jesus wrote this, for God so loved the world 
that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then he went on in his first letter, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Love means sacrifice for the sake of the beloved. Every parent who's changed a diaper at 3 a.m. knows this to be true. <laughs> Every soldier who has honored his dead brother or sister knows this to be true. God shows us the nature of love by his own actions. And as for a life that has meaning and import and significance, this passage from Philippians, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do you get that? It's his good pleasure. He delights to see you growing into the fullness of what you were created to be. Without the brokenness and the distortions that sin has inflicted upon you. We are, as my daughter likes to say, in the third act. The decisive victory has been won by Christ at the cross and in his resurrection, but we're waiting for the final battle. And as we wait, we are called to be part of what God's doing in this world. Throughout our Lenten season, we've been uh, using an offertory prayer that's shaped as, is formed by the prayers offered at the Passover mirror. Blessed are you, O Lord our God. And we thank him for all the good gifts we've been given. And then we say, with them, we give to you ourselves. And we dedicate our lives to the care and redemption of all that you have made. If you've ever been young and felt the desire to save the world, <laughs> if you've ever felt the call of an epic, great adventure, that's the story you are in. And I don't know what your gifts are. Maybe you've been gifted with compassion to visit the sick or care for those who can't care for themselves. Maybe you've been gifted with courage so you can speak to the great issues of our moment. Maybe you've been gifted with prayer so you can come alongside others. All of us have been gifted with a tongue that can tell the story of our Lord's victory and so help to spread the good of his kingdom until the fullness of it arrives. We are part and called to a great and epic adventure, an epic adventure begun this day by the victory of our Lord, which we declare every time we say, Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Indeed. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen and hallelujah. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me, save that thou art. Be thou my best heart in the day and the night. Waking or sleeping, thy presence, my love.